The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Discover a new relationship and approach to life through the space between. Join spiritual teacher Brittany Mondito for a moment of silence, a weekend workshop May 24th to 26th at Omega Institute's beautiful campus in Rhinebeck, New York. Everything we're searching for lies behind what we're running from, Brittany says. Reconnect with your inner sense of safety, grounding, and centeredness. Learn more today at eomega.org thrive. Support for this show comes from the Four Winds Society, offering the world's most thorough training in the philosophy and practice of shamanic energy medicine. Combining ancient wisdom teachings with cutting-edge neuroscience. Learn how you can begin your journey at thefourwinds.com. From Spirituality and Health Magazine, I'm Rabbi Rami, and this is Essential Conversations. My guest today is Thomas Moore. Thomas Moore is one of the grandfathers of the spiritually independent movement. He's been guiding and befriending tens of thousands of spiritual seekers who refuse to limit their wisdom to any one brand name religion. He's the author of over 20 books, perhaps most famously Care of the Soul, which has been a perennial bestseller since it was first published in 1992. His latest book is A Religion of One's Own, a guide to creating a personal spirituality in a secular world. A former Catholic monk, psychologist, author, and a regular contributor to Spirituality and Health magazine, his essay in the current issue, January-February issue of the magazine, is called Care of the Soul, 25 Years Later. Thomas Moore, welcome to Essential Conversations. Thank you very much for having me. Well, this is really an honor. I've been reading Care of the Soul for the last 25 years, as well as all the other books. So you have been a big part of my life, and it's a delight to talk to you. I imagine that most of our listeners are pretty familiar with your spiritual autobiography, so I don't want to take a lot of time on that. But if you could just take a couple of seconds and just share the spiritual trajectory of your life. Yeah, briefly, I I began when I was 13. I left home to enter a Catholic uh, monastery and seminary, so two different things, uh, studying for the priesthood and living in a monastic community. And I stayed with it for 13 years, uh, doing most of my studies in Latin, and studying a lot of Greek, and then I left it when I was about 26. It just uh, it just seemed over. I didn't have any good reason. I just felt that that part of life was was over, and I had to try something new. Did your family support that? I mean, it was you were so young. Well, how would I put it? Uh, they tried to talk me out of leaving so young. I think if I were a parent, you know, my child, I, I wouldn't even let him go at that age. <laughs> but they were very devout Catholics, and the priests assured them that it was a good thing. Of course, they were behind it. You know, they wanted to get sure. young men into the priesthood. So it's hard to say just what happened there. But my parents would do anything the priest said, and they encouraged them, and off I went. And that was a mixed thing for me. Leaving, leaving home was very, very painful and difficult. And it lasted that way. I think I was homesick for 13 years. Mm. And yet it opened up a really big world for me. So it's really hard to know. I don't know what to think about it. Do you have any sense, are young men still going into the priesthood that way from the United States? I think in very small numbers compared to what used to be very small. Many, if not most, of the priests that I run into, certainly locally where I live in Tennessee, but I I just came back from San Antonio, and they're they're not... uh, native-born Americans. You know, there, a lot of them are from India. Yeah, uh, it's it's like 
Catholicism is running out of steam, at least on the clergy level in the United States? Is that, do you, well, do you get that I, I, w- I wouldn't say Catholicism is running out of steam, but I would say that things are changing and people don't do it that way anymore. I think we're moving toward a new possibility, a new way of doing things. And this, you know, Pope Francis could really make a difference because uh, he embodies the spirit of change. So who knows what's going to happen there? And you're certainly writing about a much bigger shift, uh, you know, in, in a book like A Religion of One's Own, which I want to get oh, yeah. to in a minute. But before we, we do that, you said something really interesting in your, in, in your essay in a current issue of Spirituality and Health magazine. You note that you wrote Care of the Soul in the early 1990s, and now you're saying, and this is a quote, the world continues to move in the opposite direction. And that close quote. So what did you have in mind? I mean, what direction did you think it was going and what direction is it going? Well, I, I, what I meant was that when I wrote Care of the Soul, I, I meant to make it like a manifesto saying it's time to change, to move in a different direction. And Care of the Soul means, as I interpret it, means that we become more human. We pay attention to the intimate aspects of life, like family and taking care of children and animals and our homes, uh, neighborhoods, that kind of thing rather than always trying to move in big cultural movements and uh, trying to move fast into a future. I wanted to slow things down a bit. Well, what I'm saying is that it seems to me since Care of the Soul came out 25 years ago, things have only gotten worse from my point of view. You mean less Care of the Soul and more of these? Less Care of the Soul and more, let's forget about the soul and let's keep moving ahead. And and yet you're writing a a book, you know, a religion of one's own, that there must be, you, you must be tapping into a movement of people who want to create a personal spirituality. Oh, yes, I think so. I think there's a, there, there are people all over the world. This is not local to any culture or, or a nation. All over the world, people are shifting and changing. One of the things I always say is that I have a friend who is a, a Baptist minister, and he told me that he suddenly just woke up and he didn't feel like going to church anymore. And I thought to myself, a Baptist minister doesn't want to go to church. That's strange to me. It's like people are are really shifting and they don't know why. I don't think people know what's happening to them. Our culture is having a huge, profound, deep, hidden effect on everybody. I, I think it's basically for the good, but it's a change and we don't know really what's happening. And that change is affecting our religious habits. So I'd like to step in and say, because these things are changing, doesn't mean that we have to give up on religion, but we have to reimagine it some. Well, once you say a religion of one's own, I mean, you're really talking about, I guess, the privatization of organized religion. I mean, it was the whole thing was to be in a mass movement. And now we're seeing people, I don't know if we want to say, you know, creating boutique spiritualities, but but really customizing their spiritual life to their own needs. That's a very nice way to put it, customizing. I think that's what's happening. So I don't think that means that we no longer have community. But yes, I think what you said, we no longer, I think we no longer will have these massive uh, religious organizations. They just don't work. They don't work in the contemporary world. But small communities do work. And the traditions can work. We know so many people try uh, today, go to Tibetans to learn uh, their spirituality. They go to Indian gurus and Buddhist uh, leaders, all that kind of thing. And, uh, you know, Catholics are going to rabbis and 
Jewish people are going to Catholicism. I mean, it's so interesting what's happening. So I think the, the big, massive organizations are shifting, and that's a good thing. I think that's a very good thing. The privatization doesn't mean that it's all myself, that I'm totally alone in this business, but we create new kinds of communities that are not so impersonal. I get the sense that people are realizing, or the people that you're talking about, are realizing that they're really the heirs of all of human religiosity. So when you say, you know, a Catholic person is going to study some Buddhist practice or, you know, a Hindu is, is learning from uh, a Sufi, it, it's not like they're abandoning their the, the traditions of their birth, but they're just realizing, wait a minute, just because I was born a Hindu doesn't mean I can't learn from and adapt practices from and maybe teachings from uh, other religions of the world. They're all part of my human inheritance. Yes, exactly. They are part of our inheritance, and each one has something to give us. I think sometimes that as we explore different religions, as I have, and I explored them quite a bit in depth. I'm spending five or six years in one religion and really getting into it. So it's not like this uh, dabbling, and that's not what, what I'm doing. Some people complain about that, but that's not, I think, what people are doing, really. Another aspect of this is that I don't agree, as many people say, that all the religions say the same thing. I don't think that's true. I think that each religion really does have a different spiritual insight and talent genius. And that's the whole point. If you have only one religion, we used to say in, in, when I was studying religion at the university, the person who knows only one religion knows none, uh, in the sense that each religion has its own special ingredient to offer. So they're different, and that's a, a reason for experiencing more than one religion. You can do that and be attached to your own tradition if you like, or you can be a seeker, as a lot of people are today, not aligned with any particular tradition, but exploring them all to try to find their own way. The metaphor that I use for religion is language. And, you know, we're born with a mother tongue, but the more languages you know, the more nuanced your understanding of reality is. And some languages can say things better than others, and some languages can say things that other languages can't even articulate. So looking at religion the same way, the more religions we know, the richer our spiritual life becomes, and the broader our capacity to really understand the nature of reality becomes. Do you, do you find that to be the case? Oh, I like that very much, because what it does is, it presents religion as a tool or an instrument or a, a, a window or a path or whatever you want to call that, rather than a content. So, I mean, the content is there, but the important thing is that it takes you somewhere. And if it does that, then it's really worth something to you. But it's going to take, I think each individual person is going to take them to a different place, at least somewhat different. Discover a new relationship and approach to life through the space between. Join spiritual teacher Brittany Mondito for a moment of silence, a weekend workshop May 24th to 26th at Omega Institute's beautiful campus in Rhinebeck, New York. Everything we're searching for lies behind what we're running from, Brittany says. Reconnect with your inner sense of safety, grounding, and centeredness. Learn more today at eomega.org thrive. You made a distinction between content and then I'm going to assume practice. And in a religion of one's own, you really encourage people to pull together practices. I mean, it's not just I'm going to fill my head with a lot of different theological positions and somehow that's enough for me. If it's going to take you someplace, even if where it takes you is unique to yourself, 
practice has to be involved. Do you recommend anything in particular or categories of practice that people should try to explore? Yes, yes. In the book I do, I emphasize contemplation. You see, behind religion of one's own, this idea, there's this idea of the soul of religion as opposed to the spirit. I make a big distinction in my work between soul and spirit. So the soul would be that intimate, uh, quite personal, uh, familial, um, close to experience aspect of religion, as opposed to the universal belief and uh, the big future and the goals that you might have. So I, uh, beneath all that, I think that um, in a religion of one's own, what you're doing is finding your way toward your own understanding and your own practices. Now, they will line up, I think, with traditional practices. So I learned when I was a monk, I learned about contemplation which is slightly different from meditation, at least as I see it. So to contemplate would be to be contemplative in your daily life, the way you live. Maybe a certain peace, a certain maybe places for quiet, for reflection. And for me, it has a lot to do with music because that's, that's my art, music. So for me to contemplate through music is very, very useful and important part of my spiritual practice. Now, that's there in the traditions. Music is very important in most traditions. But not so personally. So what I suggest, if you want to have a religion of your own, instead of join just a massive organization, would be to learn from the tradition that you can make music a part of your practice. Or you can be contemplative through music. Or you can even become a mystic in your own way. I, I use the word mystic in a very positive, I mean, almost super positive way, because I've always felt that the mystics have reached the highest levels of spirituality. So I think every person can aim for that, some kind of mystical life. And that's following the tradition. You can learn a lot from the traditions, but you do it in your own way. Yeah, I look at a mystic as someone who doesn't settle for a second-hand God. He's looking for that first-hand encounter with reality. Yes, yes. No, I would too. I would say that uh, it's a direct, uh, it's, I know that's a good word for it. It's a, as you say, it's a, it's not secondhand. You try to, you, your, your effort, your purpose is to have an experience that is really ineffable, meaning that you can't really describe it. You can't make a, a workshop out of it too easily. You, uh, you simply, um, uh, find your way through, uh, traditional practices and through your own intuitions. You find your way to this direct experience of the transcendent, however we want to put that, of transcending yourself, and maybe a certain loss of self in a positive sense that the, that the mystics talk about. So that's what I say about music. I lose myself in music, but in a sense, I gain myself at the same time. And that's one of the goals and one of the practices that you can have in your own, your own personal religion. So you just said that it's not something you can easily turn into a workshop. Mm -hmm. so, do you, lots of times I get the sense that people who are seeking are at a level of workshop collecting. You know, it's like getting badges if you're yeah. a Girl Scout or a Boy Scout. And, and they go through all these gurus and take all these classes. And it fills up a lot of time. But I don't think we're talking about the experience that you're urging us to go for. Well, it seems I go back to my experience of the monastic life. I, I, I've never lost that. I, I'm very close to it, even though it's many, many years since I was actually in it. So for me to, uh, what that means is that we, we do these things very seriously. We do the practices seriously. I, I also am one, I would imagine you are too, uh, who, who is, uh, advocates study 
uh, an intelligence about our spiritual uh, work. Mm, I think absolutely. this is one of the great things we lack, intelligence. We get swayed by the latest superficial idea that comes along. So I think that, see, I learned this as a monk. We spent most of our time studying, and we were taught that to study is to pray. So that's how I feel now. I look at my own life. I'm surrounded by books as I talk to you right now. This is my little scriptorium I live in in my home. And I live the life of a monk to some extent, and I study a great deal in order to write the books. So the books I write are the result of a great deal of study. And I think that is an important spiritual practice. And it's one that is not uh, discussed, I think, very much today, but uh, it's it's a great loss if we don't cultivate our own intelligence as we go. Oh, I absolutely agree. I mean, you know, study as prayer is very Jewish. But when people hear the word study, I think they're thinking maybe academic study or, or very intellectual. You're, you're talking, I think, I'm, I imagine you're talking at a different kind of contemplative study. Can you give us yes. some insight into how that works and what people might read? You know, today a lot of people are interested in Lexio Divina, which is a kind of spiritual reading, a meditative reading. I would just extend that idea to study. So you can do a kind of study that is uh, contemplative, meditative, and it's it's uh, the most important. I think is that it is a search for uh, something important to yourself, uh, for making the next step in your own life, in your own soul work. That's what it is to me. It's, it's a soul work. So as I write my books, I have to go through a process. I don't mean an intellectual process. I mean a relationship to life. For example, I'm writing a book on aging right now, and I'm 75, and I have to deal with this. So when I write something, I've gone through it. I, I've, I've studied in the sense that I've, I've entered the question. And I've had to explore it for myself, and I've had to come up with, with solutions or with paths that are difficult to find that are an achievement. And so I write that down, so I take my study and my writing as my soul work. And I guess that's what I mean by study. Yeah, I, I often recommend people study, read, you know, contemplatively the, the mystics of the world's religions, you know, different saints, different you know, Rumi, uh, Teresa of Avila. Is that part of, would you recommend that to people as well? Well, of course, of course I would, but, um, but I, um, uh, yes, I, I mean, you can read Rumi and be terribly inspired, especially by the beauty of language and thought. You know, the thoughts can be beautiful, and that's, that's really something that Rumi offers. I don't think some of the mystics are, to me at least, some of the mystics are a little crazy. You know, I mean, they're, <laughs> they're, they re- I don't know if it's the best modeling for people today. Okay. Good, uh, good. On the other hand, you know what I do, though? I have a slightly different take on it, but I, you probably would, I, I would expect you to, uh, to be doing the same thing. I don't make a distinction between spiritual or sacred literature on one hand and secular literature on the other. True. So to me, and in my books, I try to make this very clear, the way, the way I write, that if I'm looking for a spiritual insight, I might well go to Emily Dickinson uh, or to uh, D.H. Lawrence or to even, a, you know, to a, a detective story rather than to one of the mystics, because I think that there's a whole realm of spiritual insight that is overlooked if we make a division between the secular and the sacred here. Oh, very, very good point. We are just about out of time, so I want to ask you one last question. And this comes from your website, the uh, careofthesoul.net website, and... You write on there, my life work is an attempt to ground the pure visionary spirit 
in the imperfect, intoxicating sensuousness of worldly life. going to say it one more time and then just get your response to that. My life work is an attempt to ground the pure visionary spirit in the imperfect, intoxicating sensuousness of worldly life. So elaborate a little bit on that. And, and do you feel confident that you're actually achieving this? Uh, well, I feel pretty good about it. I don't want to make any distinctions between the spiritual and the everyday, the secular. The one way I put it is for myself to make it personal. I hope that person, a person looks at me. I know for myself that I have a very intense spiritual life, but I hope that when they look at me, they don't see it. Wow. I want my spirituality to be so baked into my life, in my ordinary life, that it's invisible. I mean, that's that's my ideal. I don't expect anyone else to agree with that or to want to go that direction, but that's my ideal. That is beautiful and a beautiful place to end. Very, very sweet. My guest today was Thomas Moore. His newest book is A Religion of One's Own, A Guide to Creating a Personal Spirituality in a Secular World. You can learn more about his work at thomasmoresoul.com. Thomas Moore, thank you so much for being with us on Essential Conversations. Thank you, Rami. I really enjoyed it. Essential Conversations with Rabbi Rami is a project of Spirituality and Health magazine. Visit spiritualityhealth.com and subscribe to the magazine in either print or digital formats and download the iTunes app for this podcast. Essential Conversations is produced by Corinne Johnston and our program coordinator is Alma Tassi. I'm Rabbi Rami. Thanks for listening. I'm Michelle Phillips, a celebrity makeup artist, beauty expert, self-confidence coach, and Hay House author. My podcast, Beauty and Beyond, is the place for women navigating the challenges of the aging process. Listen in for my professional advice, as well as my expert guests, as we share valuable tips, practical tools, and empowering resources to help you not only look amazing, but also live an amazing life part of the mindbodyspirit.fm podcast network and available wherever you get your podcasts.